0: You know, it's such a blessing to be up here this morning. I, um, one of the greatest parts about teaching God's Word is that so many people come up when they know you're going to teach, or either that, they feel sorry for you, and they start praying for you. And I, I must have had like 10, 20 people pray for this, me this morning, so I'm feeling like extra holy and extra energized. I'm so blessed that I have all this gum and candy and water up here. Thank you, Shirley. Uh, this morning, we're going to be looking uh, into the gospel of John, John chapter 6, one of my favorite books in the New Testament. I actually went through this uh, gospel a few, uh, couple of years ago. Actually, it actually took me a couple of years to get through this gospel. Uh, it's such a beautifully written gospel, and I love it because of the uniqueness and the order that it was written. And John's gospel is really a message to all believers, but also it ministers to the unbeliever as well. In John chapter 20, this is what he writes. He actually writes, this is the theme of his gospel. In John chapter 20, verse 31, he says, But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. I love that. That's what he's. That's the whole purpose of his gospel. But one of the unique things is that John does is that he puts things in his gospels that no one else did in their gospels, in the other three. Statements like the seven I am statements, you're familiar with all those, right? I am the bread of life, I am the light of the world, I am the door, I am the good shepherd, I am the resurrection and the life, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and I am the true vine. And this morning we're going to be looking into John chapter 6. Well, he'll make mention of one of these statements, I am the bread of life. Now, this is a really long chapter, and obviously we're not going to cover the whole thing unless you guys want to stay here a little longer. No? Okay. We're actually going to be mainly looking at the last portion of this passage, but first I want to set the scene for you of what's taking place here in order for us to get the full context and the full meaning of what Jesus is saying here. Uh, beginning in verses 1 through 14, we read the, of the miracle of Jesus feeding this great multitude that have been following him, and actually it gives a reason why in verse 2, which is really important to, for today's message that you pay attention to this verse, because this gives uh, talks about why these people were actually following Jesus in verse 2. The reason why is that they followed him because they saw his signs which they performed on those, who, on those who were diseased. And we know the rest of the story in these first 14 verses that Jesus looks up, he sees this great multitude, and he knows that they need to be fed. And he tests one disciple in particular, Philip. He calls him out by name and says, hey, you know, you need to feed these people. And Philip is like, what do you mean? How am I going to feed this? We only have so much money, and it's going to take a lot more than what we have. And we know the rest of the story. Jesus takes two small fish and five uh, barley loaves, and he feeds 5,000 just men alone, not counting the women and children. But at the completion of this miracle, it says in verse 14, it says, those men, when they uh, had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, truly, this is the prophet who has come into the world. And the prophet that they're speaking of here, uh, goes back actually to Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, where Moses spoke of a prophet that would be coming uh, to the children of Israel. Now, in verses 15 through 21, we see another miracle of Jesus. We're all familiar with the story of Jesus walking on the water. At the end of the first portion of our scripture, verse 15 says that uh, after the miracle of feeding the 5,000, that the people were trying to take Jesus by force and wanted him to make him king, only because he was taking care of their physical needs. And because of that, Jesus says that Jesus went away into the mountain and he went by himself to be alone. And the disciples got into a boat. And they decided that they were going to go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee uh, and head towards Capernaum. And obviously they got stuck in a windstorm. And guess who comes to their rescue? Jesus comes to their rescue walking on the water. And it says when he got into the boat, they immediately were at shore. And now beginning in verses 22 through 40, and this is where it gets interesting. And this is where Jesus begins to challenge his followers. Beginning in verse 26. He says this, Jesus answered and said to them, most assuredly, I I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. Now, I'm going to go through this chapter rather quickly. And sometimes I talk rather quickly. Uh, My wife is always telling me, you know, explain yourself. You just talk too slow. But when I preach, she's always telling me, slow down. You're talking too fast. So I'm just kind of giving you a heads up. If I talk too fast, it's okay to throw something at me and say, hey, you're going too fast, Okay. But make sure it's something soft, all right? Don't throw anything at her. But because Jesus is making this statement, he's, giving, he's calling to people on the carpet here and just telling them, you know, because they've been following him, and they actually catch up with him. And he says, I know why you're following me. You're following me because your belly's got full, basically, is what he's saying here in verse 26. He says, do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal on him. Then they said to him, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? And Jesus answered and said to him, said to them, and this is really key, okay? This is the work of God, and here it is, that you believe in him who sent him. Therefore they said to him, what sign will you perform then that we may see and believe you? What work will you do? Obviously, this goes right over their head. Jesus gives them a basic, simple answer of how you do the works of God. And he says, you need to believe on the one whom he sent. You need to believe in me. And what do they ask for? They ask for works. What work are you going to do? What sign are you going to do so that we can believe? Obviously, for Jesus, this is one of those oive moments, you know. I mean, at least it would be for me. The followers are obviously thinking of their flesh. They're thinking in the flesh. And plus, they, you can tell by their response. They start talking about how the manna that was given to their forefathers And they quote Psalm 78 basically saying that this manna came down from heaven. It was angel's food that was provided uh, for for our forefathers. And again, it's them thinking in the flesh and thinking from the physical. And at this point, Jesus begins to unveil himself and begins to unveil who he really is uh, to these followers. Beginning in verse 33, it says, For the bread of God is he who who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. And if that answer sounds familiar, it's very similar to what the woman at the well said. You remember what she said? When Jesus said, you know, I have this drink, and then when you drink of it, you'll, you'll never thirst again. And she says, give me this water. I want, I want this water. And it's basically the same answer that these followers are giving Jesus here. And Jesus goes on to say in verses 35 through 37, he says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst." But I say to you that you believe and that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and no one who comes to me will I by no means cast out. Now going into verses 41 through 52, Jesus' Jesus's attention is going to be turned towards the Jews. And the word the Jews there, that phrase that John uses so often, he actually usually like some something like 70 times, over 70 times he uses this word, the Jews. And that phrase is referring to the rulers, the spiritual, so-called spiritual leaders of the children of Israel. And Jesus' attention is going to kind of go from the common people to, to these Jews. And the reason why, it gives us the reason why they're in verses 43 through 59, it's because they're murmuring. Verses 41 through 42, it says that the Jews were complaining, they were murmuring about Jesus, what his claim was. He was claiming to be this bread of life that came down from heaven. The Jews were saying, Well, we know his parents. We know where he came from. How can he say that he came down from heaven? How can he say that he is this bread of life? And in verses 43 through 59, Jesus confronts them and he says this Don't murmur among yourselves. I love the way the New Living Translation puts this. It says, Don't complain about what I said. And that's really what he's saying. What are you complaining about? Don't murmur. Don't complain. But he also tells them something very, very important here in verses 44 through 45. That it all begins with the Father. He says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. I love this passage of Scripture. Everyone who comes to Jesus has been drawn by the Father. Every one of you who call yourself born again has been drawn by the Father. And this verse makes it so personal of what God or what Jesus is saying here. It's about the relationship that we have with the Father. It's about a relationship. And I believe the reason why Jesus is, is saying this to these Jews is so that they would fully understand And it's not about their religion, it's not about their traditions. And that same word holds for all of us today. It's not about our religion or traditions. It's about a relationship. It's, draw, it's being drawn by God the Father himself. And I just think that it's so personal. It's just such a personal invitation. I think that's the point that Jesus is trying to make here. It's not about your religion. It's about a relationship. And having been drawn by the Father is just so, it's so unique and so personal that it was probably foreign to these listeners that he was talking to here. And he also confirms it by quoting a scripture from Isaiah chapter 54, verse 13. And to me, that was be speaking volumes to the people because he wants them to know, this is the same father that you claim that you serve. This is my father. My father in heaven is the same God that you serve, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And then he gives them the comparison between the manna which they were claiming to have and the bread of life which he is claiming to be. Verses 49 through 50. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness, and they're dead. Oops. This is the bread which comes down from heaven, that one may eat of it and not die. And Jesus is going to repeat the statement again down in verse 58. But Jesus was simply giving them an explanation between the physical and the spiritual here. The manna and the bread of life himself. And it's a great lesson here for all of us. The physical versus the spiritual. Eating the physical bread in the wilderness Brought physical death is what he's saying here. The physical, the flesh, cannot be satisfied. You know, a good example of that is Thanksgiving. How many of you ate like pigs on Thanksgiving, right? And then you rolled over the couch, right? And you said, Oh my gosh, and you swear by heaven, I'm never going to eat like that again. And then an hour later, what happens? You hear that still small voice. Who wants dessert? And all of a sudden, it's a Thanksgiving miracle. I'm hungry again. <laughs> Listen, it's the same thing. The appetite of our flesh is too great. You can never satisfy it, it'll never be satisfied. And I can testify to that. I can truly, unfortunately, testify to that. Because in my fleshly days, I tried everything under the sun to satisfy that appetite, that fleshly need, that hunger. And nothing worked. You know, I got saved back in 1978. And I was still a young man, believe it or not, back then. And what brought me to that place, I didn't know that people were praying for me. And I was a mess. I mean, I was just, I was a young man and I tried everything under the sun. And some people that I knew from high school actually were Christians and they prayed for me and kept praying for me. And a couple of days uh, before Christmas, I got that, you know, one of those phone calls in the middle of the night that you hate to get and this was like 2 days before Christmas and it was a call that my mother was was dead and i later found out that she was murdered and right away my my spirit within me became angry and i was already angry enough as it was and i became even more so angry and i just couldn't couldn't hold it in anymore and two days went by and i just like was just like what is this what is this life what does this even mean and my belief in god was just very limited Actually, the only way I understood how God existed is when I saw my daughter first being born. And I saw those little hands and those little feet, and I thought, there has to be a creator. There has to be a maker. There has to be a God. But that was it. Two days went by, and on Christmas Day, I just couldn't take it anymore. And I cried out to God, and I said, I was like Peter when he was drowning. Remember what he said? Lord, save me. And that's what I did. I said, Lord, save me. And he did, and he radically changed my life overnight. But previous to that, I tried everything under the sun to satisfy my flesh, and I could not do it. Everything, and I'm talking about things that I just won't talk about up here because they're embarrassing, some of them, to be honest with you. From addictions to everything under the sun, you can think about. But nothing would satisfy my flesh, and that's what's taking place here. These people here are looking for something to satisfy the physical flesh, and Jesus is giving them a great spiritual lesson. They were being called out on their religion. Their religion wasn't going to make them spiritual. The other people before them were just looking for the physical, more food. Jesus was offering them spiritual bread. And if they ate of this bread, they will live forever. Well, Jesus goes on to explain the living, the spiritual bread to the Jews by saying this. He says, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. And if anyone eats of this bread, he will... Live forever, and the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which shall give life to the world. You know, at this point, the Jews aren't murmuring anymore. Verse 52 says that they begin to quarrel because of this statement that Jesus makes here. Actually, if you look at the old King James, it uses the word strove, and it means to war, it means to quarrel, it means to dispute, it means to strive. They were fighting amongst themselves. They were fighting within themselves. You know, and that brings up a point that the name of Jesus is going to bring division. It's going to bring strife to people, isn't it? I know, especially through this holidays, you probably have experienced that. The holidays is probably the best time of the season to evangelize your family and friends. And when you name the name of Jesus, a lot of times you see that strife going on inside their hearts. Listen, don't be discouraged. And I know some of you have family and friends and even children that have maybe gone astray. And when you mention the name of Jesus, they just like, I don't want to hear it. Listen, that's a good thing. To me, if there's conviction, there's hope. If there's conviction, there's hope. Don't be discouraged. The name of Jesus is supposed to bring division. It's supposed to bring conviction. And that's what's taking place here. The words that he's stating are radical statements. And if you think that's radical, it's going to be even more radical here as we move on. Jesus is now going to explain and make us another statement here in response to the question that they're arguing over. In verse 52, it says that they quarreled among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? But then Jesus comes back with this answer. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood... And are dead. He who eats this bread will live forever. Now, when Jesus said that the bread was his flesh, it caused the leaders to quarrel. And Jesus is saying, Well, you know, Jesus could have stopped there and said, Well, that's enough for them. That's all they can handle right now. But no, he keeps going. He says, Even more. He says, Unless not only do you have to eat the flesh, but you have to drink my blood, or there's no life in you at all. You know, forget kosher, right? The Jews are probably just totally freaking out by this statement. I mean, that's, you know, they were not supposed to eat the blood. You know, on the screen there, you're going to see Deuteronomy chapter 12. This is an instruction that Moses had given him in the law of Moses. Verses 23 through 25 says, Only be sure that you do not eat the blood, for the blood is life. You may not eat the life with the meat. You shall not eat it. You shall pour it on the earth like water. You shall not eat it, that it may go well with you and your children after you when you do what is right in the sight of the Lord. And here Jesus is saying, unless you eat the blood or drink the blood, you're not going to have any life in you. Obviously, Jesus wasn't talking in the literal sense. Neither was it literal when he talked to the woman at the well, talking about drinking the water, right? These Jews quarreled among themselves because they, like the first group of people, were thinking in the literal or in the flesh, not in the spiritual. And it just shows you what kind of spiritual leaders these Jews were. They were pretty pathetic, actually. Now, a couple of things in regards to the flesh and the blood of Jesus and also the eating and drinking of the flesh and the blood of Jesus. There are different interpretations Some are really very off, I believe. Um, This is not speaking of partaking of the literal flesh and blood of Jesus, which some religions do believe that. Uh, Nor is it saying that you must partake of communion in order to receive salvation. This is not saying that either, and some religions do believe that. Actually, the eating and drinking are not speaking of communion at all because Jesus hasn't instituted the communion yet. We haven't gotten to that point yet. However, Jesus is, I believe, is unveiling the new covenant. He's talking about himself. The literal part of this discourse was that his body and his blood was going to be a sacrifice for the entire world. And that's what he's speaking about here. That's the literal part. But the spiritual part is explained, and I think it's explained very, very well, and it makes it very clear what Jesus is saying here in this next section of Scripture In verses 56 through 57, he says, He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the Father has sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. The key to understanding this passage of Scripture this morning can be found in this one word, and that's the word abide. I love this word abide. Jesus uses this word abide several times in the Gospel of John. Obviously, it was one of John's favorite words because if you look at his epistles, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, especially 1st John, he uses it quite a bit. The word abide means to stay. It means to be stay in one given place or one state. It means to continue. It means to dwell. It means to endure. It means to stand and to tarry. On the screen, you're going to see John chapter 15. Most of you are familiar with this passage. In the passage of John chapter 15, it's such a great passage of Scripture. He uses the word abide something like 10 times in this passage. In verses 4 and 5, he says, Abide in me and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. The word abide is speaking of relationship here. It's a commitment. It's a marriage. To to paraphrase verse 56, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood means that you abide in me and I in you. That's what it simply means. And to really drive the point home, especially when you talk about relationship, Verse 57, as the living Father has sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. And I love that verse. He who feeds on me. And it's such an incredible verse. And what a beautiful picture when you think about that. He who feeds on me. Because I live of the Father and you feed on me. Because of, and you will have that relationship with the Father. It's a beautiful picture of Jesus Christ being that mediator between God and man. To me, I look at this and I picture the blood of the Lamb, and I I think of this spiritual transfusion. You know, it's it's God, it's Jesus reaching between God and man, His blood making that connection. The blood of the cross of the cross flowing down into us, into our lives so that he can restore peace between God and man. What a beautiful picture. If we feed on him, our relationship is going to be connected to the Father. Everything is coming from Jesus. And remember, Jesus does nothing of himself. He's talking about a humble service here. He's not saying, you know, you take of me and you're going to have eternal life, but make sure you look at me and exalt me. He's not saying that at all. He's saying this with a humble heart. If you go back to verse 38, he says, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will. I'm not doing my own will. I'm doing the will of my Father who sent me. He humbly did it. He unselfishly did it. He unselfishly became that channel between us and God so that peace could be restored. Again, it's about the relationship. And Jesus will say something similar to this in John chapter 14 which is also up on the screen. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him, and we will make our home with him. That's what Jesus is talking about here. He's talking about making a home with you and I. He's talking about relationship here. Eating his flesh and drinking his blood is all about an intimate relationship with your king. But it's also speaking about one thing, and I want to... Really, This is really what I want to focus on. It's the C word. I call it the C word because a lot of people are afraid to say it, and a lot of people are afraid of this word for some reason. The C word is commitment. This whole passage can be summed up in the word commitment, especially when you get to verses 23 through, through 71. The people didn't want to Commit. This message is covering all aspects of people. If you look at this chapter closely, and I challenge you to go home and read this chapter because it's too much for me to try to explain the whole thing in this short time. But there's three types of people that Jesus are talking to if you look real closely. In verses 20 through 40, he's talking to the common people. These will be people like you and I would call like the worldly people or the unsaved. These are the ones that are living for themselves. These are the ones that are chasing after those cravings and desires of their flesh. The second group of people, you would consider those the religious people in verses 40 through 59. And this would not only cover those who were practicing Judaism, but this is is covering every religion in the world today. The next group of people are disciples in verses 60 through 71. And really, you could break up this group of disciples into two groups. You can break them up into false disciples and true disciples because that's what Jesus is going to be talking to here in a moment. And just because you're a disciple does not mean that you know Christ. The word disciple was used in many different ways in the scripture. A lot of times it would talk about just the 12 apostles would be considered the disciples. And sometimes it was talking about more than one. We see that in Luke's gospel where he talked about that in John, uh, Luke chapter 10 where he sent out 70 of his disciples. But in this group here, just because they're called disciples does not mean they were actually true followers of Christ. In this chapter, what Jesus is doing is he's going to create a chasm, if you will, a dividing line between a true follower and a false follower. It's like he's come to this point in his ministry, in his public ministry right now, that he's saying, okay, I'm done. I'm done feeding your flesh. Now it's time where the rubber meets the road. This is what you got to do. This is what you're going to have to do. There's going to be this dividing line. And you're going to have to fall on one side or the other. And I love this about this passage because that's really what it's doing. It's making this really plain and simple black and white picture. And it's something that we need to hold to as well. You know, there's always a, a comment, like people who always say, well, you know, I know this person, this, you know, this person I've been ministering to. He's, he's really on the fence, just on the fence. He can fall on either side. There is no fence, either on one side or the other. And that's what Jesus is doing here in this passage. He's creating that chasm and saying there's going to be just one side or the other. In verses 60 through 71, it says, Therefore, many of the disciples, when they heard this, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can understand it? When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about this, he said to them, Does this offend you? What then if you should see the Son of Man ascend from where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit. They are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who would betray him. And he said, therefore I said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my Father. And from this time, many of the disciples went back and walked with him no more. Then Jesus said to the twelve, Do you also want to go away? But Simon Peter answered, answered him, said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also, we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for it was he who would betray him, being one of the twelve. You know, it's those who have been hearing Jesus and seeing his signs and wonders, and the response to everything Jesus had been doing up to this point really, you know, they were really very non committal. They really didn't have to commit to anything at this point in Jesus' ministry. They were following him because he was doing all these great signs and miracles. They were following him because they were being fed physically. And they really did not have to commit to something. And now Jesus is telling them that you need to make a commitment here. And I love what Jesus says in verse 60, or what the people said in verse 60. It says that this is a hard saying. Who can understand it? And there's different interpretations as far as what this passage of Scripture means. I love the way the uh, New American Standard Bible translates this. It says, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? I really like that passage because that's what it's really saying, is who can listen to it? That's a big difference. There's difference between understanding and listening. And I think that's where, where the people had a hard time going, is they didn't want to listen to it. It's not that they couldn't hear it. There were certain parts of their lives spiritually that they couldn't understand spiritual matters. But they could hear the voice of Christ. They they could hear what he was saying. But the choice that they had to make, they didn't want to go there. It's a hard saying. It's harsh. It's rough. It's offensive. It's disagreeable. And whether they fully understood it or not, it was so offensive. It seemed so absurd to them that they couldn't bear it. Jesus' doctrine that he was the bread of life that had come down from heaven. And it was set in order so that they may have atonement. Forgiveness of sin. It was absolutely necessary for this to take place, for this to happen this way. They had to partake of his flesh and his blood. But because of his statements, they refused to listen. And now Jesus is going to confront these so-called disciples in verses 61 through 65. This is when Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about it. He said, does this offend you? And that word offend means to stumble. Am I making you stumble? What a great question. It's a good question to think about. A good question to ask yourself. Does this make you stumble? Does Jesus make you stumble? Does he offend you? What then if you should see the son of man ascend from where he was before? It's the spirit who gives life. The words of Christ are going to offend. They are going to offend people like I told you before. And that's a good thing. But I love about this, about Jesus, is that he never lets up. You know, it says in verse 61, he says, He already knew what they were complaining about. Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about this. And in verse 64, he also says, For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe. He already knew. And I love that about John's gospel because he uses that word a lot. He talks about Jesus being all-knowing. He knew already from the beginning who was going to reject them and who was going to accept them. But did he stop? No, he kept giving them the gospel. He kept going after them. It's kind of like Judas who betrayed him. Remember when he betrayed him in the garden? He came up and kissed him. Remember what Jesus said to him? You idiot, you betrayer. No, he didn't say that. He says, friend, friend, companion. I love that about Christ. He never stops pleading. He never gives up. You know, there was a point in my life where I told you I was saved back in 1978. I walked with the Lord faithfully, at least I thought I was, for about 13 years. And there were some certain things that happened in my life, and like the typical man, I thought I could fix them. I got this God. You know, I got it covered. Don't worry. I got, I'll take care of it. And instead of being obedient to him, I, I was working in my flesh. And I started compromising. Little compromise, just a little compromise. And next thing you know, there were full blown out compromises where I was totally, I totally walked away from God. If you ever read the story of the prodigal son, that was my life. Totally walked away. I became a worse sinner than I was when I was a sinner. You know what I mean? When I was in the flesh, when I wasn't born again, you think nothing of it. But when you walk away from God, and once you've tasted the goodness of God, and then you walk away from Him, it's a miserable life. It was miserable. I wouldn't even wish that on my enemy. I didn't have peace, I didn't have rest. I was committing sin that I just never thought I would ever commit. I got addicted to drugs. I was doing all kinds of ungodly things that you just, you know, again, unmentionable things. But God kept coming after me. And most people say, well, maybe you weren't saved in the first place. But something was calling me back. Something was convicting me. That's why I never had rest. I'm talking about I never had physical rest. I never had peace during that season. And I would literally look over my shoulder, and I'm not kidding you. I'm just, I would look over my shoulder and say, Why are you still following me? Let me go. Leave me alone. I can't handle this. I can't stand this. And you know what changed me? What finally brought me to my senses? The same thing as a prodigal son. Just came to my right mind. I was walking in the streets. I was at this four-way stop. And one side was just this barren land. And God spoke to me in this still, small voice. That's what it was. And it wasn't the thunder. It wasn't the fire. It wasn't anything. It was this still, small voice saying, are you done? And he says, this is your option. You can either live or you can die. And this is going to be your kingdom, this barren land. That's where you're going to die. Or you can come to me and come back home. Fortunately, I made the right choice and I came back home. But see, that's Jesus. That's the story here. He's still pleading. He never stops. He knew what they they needed. He knew that they were going to reject him, but yet he still gave them hope. He still gave them a message. So beautiful. These people stumbled over these words of Christ, but yet at the same time, he gives them this great explanation of what he's talking about here. In verse 63, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit, and they are life. That's what Jesus is saying here in this passage. I'm giving you spiritual. Don't think in the fleshly way. I'm not talking about literally eating my flesh and drinking my blood. It's the Spirit who gives life. He makes it very clear that Jesus was speaking to them in a spiritual matter, not a literal one. To me, it makes it very clear, explaining what he's talking about here. The words that I speak to you are spirit, whereas we would say they're spiritual. This is where the life is. This, it's not in the flesh. The flesh profits nothing. His flesh, in our flesh, would profit nothing. But his, his spirit in us is what gives us life. And in spite of Jesus' explanation in verse 66, I think it's probably one of the status passages of Scripture in the Bible. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. That's sad. And that word many that it's talking about, many of his disciples in the Greek is talking about a very large amount. Like a huge amount. We would use the word majority. The majority turned away and walked with him no more. This brings to light what Matthew said in Matthew 7, or Jesus said in Matthew 7, chapter 7, verses 13 through 14. Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go by it. Because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way that leads to life, and there are few who find it. I think at this point in Jesus' ministry, his numbers weren't very high. Unfortunately, we judge success by numbers, don't we? But Jesus didn't. All Jesus needed was a few true disciples, true followers that would change the world and make the world right side up. But that's what Jesus is doing here purposely. He's created this dividing line and saying, Are you committed? Are you committed to following me? Are you true followers? What side of the line are you going to step on? And so Jesus at this point turns to the 12. His apostles, the one that he chose by, by hand, picked each one of them. And in verse 67, he says, do you want to go away also? But look who answers. Good old Peter. You'd always rely on Peter to give an answer, Right? He says Lord to whom shall we go you have the words of eternal life also we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ the son of the living god you know Peter himself i don't think he fully understand what jesus was saying here about the flesh and blood as well probably didn't i'm sure he understood it later so what did peter hear that everyone else missed if you go back and look through this chapter very carefully, verses 27, 33, 35, 39, 40, 44, 47, 50, 54, and on and on have the same common thread: life. Everlasting life. That's what Peter heard. He heard Jesus talking about everlasting life. That's what his answer was. "Lord, whom we're going to go to? You have the words of eternal life. You're speaking eternal life here. Isn't that amazing? How he got it, and no one else did. Why? Because he was open. His heart was ready. He was hungry. He wanted that in his life. He knew he was missing something. Peter also says in verse 69, he says, Also we have come to believe and to know. To believe and to know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That word believe. I love that word. It's so one, another one of John's favorite words because he uses it quite a bit. He's talking about putting a trust and a commitment to something or to someone. They were trusting and committed to the life of Christ. But not only did Peter say that we believe, he said we know. Another one of John's favorite words, you see that he used that a lot. That word know means that they not only believe but they were sure. They were absolutely sure that Jesus was the Messiah. Peter's statement and and proclamation here really is the theme of John's gospel. Again, going back to that phrase that he said in verse 31 in John chapter 20, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life in his name. Now, real quickly, there is some application in this passage. Great application for you and I this morning going back to verses 61 through 66, looking at why so many followers of Jesus rejected him after he had made this statement, most assuredly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you will have no life in you. This statement actually in this passage, especially when you look at the core of this message here, can be summed up in one word, and that word word. Again, is the C word, commitment. We're afraid of that word for some reason. We can commit to some things, but there's some things that we won't commit to. We can commit to a job, right? Why? Well, we get paid for it. But committing to Jesus, that's a big step. And the reason why it's so hard is because we have to surrender our will to his will. And most people don't want to do that. They want to be in control of everything. We all do. In our flesh, that's what we want. We want control. Is that true or is that just me? The disciples in verses 61 through 66 had this fear. And that's because of the commitment they had to have. Jesus was calling them to be truly committed. And they couldn't do it. And many, many, many people today are not willing to do that. Unfortunately, the fear of commitment happens to many lives and the lives of believers as well. And maybe some of you here this morning fall into that category, that you're having a hard time committing your life to Christ or staying committed to your king. And that's the question that I present to you this morning. Are you totally committed to your king? Are you sold out for him? God doesn't want us to to be wishy-washy in our faith. He can't afford to. You know, we're living in times where I believe we're close to the end times. We're being challenged every day. Our freedoms that we have as Christians are being taken away. You know, I'm so blessed that, you know, we meet Friday mornings, our men's group meets Friday morning at Panera Bread, uh, at 6.30 every Friday. That's a commercial, by the way, okay, from Vermin. But it's what's so beautiful. We get like 16, 17, 18 guys right in the middle of this restaurant, and we're right in the middle, and people are looking at us. They're watching us with our Bibles open. They're watching us praying, and what a great testimony. But I'm thinking in my back of my mind, I'm thinking that any moment someone's going to come in and say, you know what, you can't do that here anymore. We're not far from that. Listen. This morning, you need to ask yourself that question: Are you truly committed? Because this message stands for today, as well as for us today, as well as it did then. You know, a good test, a way of testing yourself, and you know, we're caused to, called to examine ourselves, is to ask yourself: Is how's is your relationship with Jesus? Is it up and down? Are you always in and out? Is it just on Sunday? Another way is, how's your relationship, your earthly relationships? How's your relationship with your spouse, with your children, with your friends? Is it the same way? Listen, if those relationships are shaky and they're not working for you, then most likely there's something wrong or something not working in your commitment to Christ. And if you're asking, well, what should I do? Stop running. Stop running. Don't walk away like these disciples did. Stop running. Like I shared with you before, I ran for a season. And then God finally told me, stop running. Don't be like those followers here in chapter 6. They followed Jesus for the wrong reasons. They wanted their appetite met, their fleshly appetite. Do the same thing. If you're struggling, do the same thing that Jesus told the church at Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2. He says, I had this one thing against you. You left your first love. And what does he say to do? Verse 5, he says, remember. Remember. We always constantly need to be reminded. Remember. Remember where you have fallen. Another thing to do, he says, repent. Just repent. Turn around. Start going back the other way. Do the first works. And another thing is you start abiding in Christ. If you didn't hear anything else, hear this, abide in Christ. That's so important. Abiding. Again, the word abide means you're staying in one given place. That means you continue and you dwell with who? With your king. That means you're spending time with him. You're spending time at his feet every day, trusting in him. Psalm 37, verses 3 through 5 says, Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. Delight yourself also in the Lord, and he shall give you the desire of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. Listen, Jesus gave us plenty examples of how to follow, of how to commit. There were so many examples, and one great example that sticks out to mind, and I'm just going to close with this, is the O word. <laughs> obedience. Obedience. And commitment obedience go hand in hand to me. Because they both require a selfless life. They both require for you to give up your will and let God have his way with you. We saw that already in Jesus' life in verse 38. We also see this in John chapter 8, verses 28 through 29. Jesus said to him, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and I do nothing of myself. But as my Father taught me, I speak these things. And He who sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone, for I always do those things that please Him. How many of us can say that we always do those things that please Him? Yeah. Yeah. Obedience. Paul said that Jesus was so obedient. He was obedient to the point of death in Philippians chapter 2. And I know what you're thinking. You're probably thinking, yeah, well, that was Jesus. What about me? I don't think I can be that obedient. I don't think I can be that committed. I don't think I can say I can always do the things that please them. Yes, you can. Yes, I can. Well, that's pretty arrogant. No, it's not. I just want to close with this one passage of Scripture, Romans chapter 8, verse 11. Paul says that the Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead dwells in us. Wow, that's powerful. The Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead dwells in us? And we say we can't commit, we can't be obedient? Yes, you can. Yes, we can. You know, this morning, if any of you are struggling in this area, I want to just challenge you that this morning is a time where God's brought you here and He wants you to surrender everything and submit to Him and commit your yourself to Him. It's just an act of obedience. It's an act of surrender. You know, we have the resources, and the question is, is that are we allowing the Spirit to control our lives? That's what it comes down to. Are we truly committed to our King?